Chapter 18 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Having now some leisure time on my hands to consider over my own affairs, I had thoughts of transporting my family with all my effects to Sassdorped Swangianti, but yet had no mind to relinquish all thought of my ship and cargo, for the greatest part of this was still remaining, I having had but the pickings through the gulf. I once had a mind to have gone myself, but considering the immense distance over sea, though I had once come safe, I thought I ought not to tempt Providence where my presence was not absolutely necessary. Nasgig, to whose care and conduct any enterprise might be trusted, offered his service to go and execute any commands I should give him. His only difficulty, he said, was that it would be impossible for him to remember the different names of many things which he had no idea of to convey the knowledge of them to his mind when he saw them, but barring that he doubted not to give me satisfaction. I told him I would send an assistant with him who could remember whatever I once told him, and that I might not burden his memory with names only. Lasmiel should carry his memory with him, and that he, Nazgig, should only have the executive part. Lasmiel, who had sat waiting an opportunity to put in for a share in the adventure, having a longing desire to see the ship, told Nazgig he had a peculiar art of memory, so as to remember whatever he would as long as he pleased, and that if he carried that with him, they need fear no mistakes. The king, having granted me as many of his guards as I pleased for the carriage of my things, we appointed them to be ready on the fourth day, when Nazgig and Lasmiel set out with them. I ordered Lasmiel, however, to be with me the next morning, that we might set down proper instructions, which I told him would be very long, and that he must bring a good number of leaves with him. When Lasmiel entered my chamber next morning, he informed me that the whole city was in an uproar, especially those who had been freed by me. What, says I, have they so soon forgot their subjection to misapply their liberty already? But step and bring me word what's the matter, and order some of the ringleaders hither to me. Lasmiel, upon inquiry, found that it had been given out I was going to leave the country, and they all said, wherever I went, they were determined to go and settle with me, for if I left them, they should be reduced to slavery again. However, he brought some of them to me, and upon my telling them, I thanked them for their affection to me, but blamed them for showing it in so tumultuous a manner, and that I was so far from intending to leave them, that I was sending for my family and effects in order to settle amongst them. They rejoiced very much, and told me they would carry the good news to their companions, and disperse immediately. But I was now in more perplexity than before, for they having signified my designs to the rest, they rushed into the gallery in such numbers that they forced me up to my very chamber. 
I told them this was an unprecedented manner of using a person they pretended a kindness for, and told them if they made use of such risings to express their gratitude to me, it would be the direct means to oblige me to leave them. For, says I, do you think I can be safe in a kingdom where greater deference is paid to me than to the crown? They begged my pardon, they said, and would obey me in anything, but the present trouble was only to offer their services to fetch my family and goods, or to do anything else I should want them for, and if I would favor them in that, they would retire directly. I told them, when I had considered of it, they should hear from me, and this again quieted them. This disturbance not only took up much of my time, which I could have better employed, but put me to a non-plus, how to come off with them, till I sent Malik to tell them, though I set a great value upon their esteem, yet after what had passed, it would be the most unadvisable thing in nature for me to accept their kindness, for having before requested a body of men of the king, as he had graciously granted them, it would be preferring them to the king. Should I now relinquish his grant and make use of their offer? And after this, I heard no more of it. I had scarce met with a more difficult task than to fix exact rules for the conduct of my present undertaking, there being so many things to be expressed, wherein the least perplexity arising might have caused both delay and damage. For I was not only forced to set down the things I would have brought, but the manner and method of packing and securing them. But as Lazmiel could read my writing to Pedro at home, and Uworki on board, it would be a means, though far from an expeditious one, of bringing matters into some order. And after I had done as I thought, I could have enumerated many more things, and was obliged to add an etc. to the end of my catalogue, and while they were ready for flight, I added diverse other particulars and circumstances. Nay, when they were even upon the grundee, I recollected the most material thing of all, for my great concern was, having broke up so many of my chests, to find package for the things, I say, even so late as that, I bethought me of the several great water casks I had on board that would hold an infinite number of small things and would be slung easily. So I stopped them and set down that, and they were no sooner out of sight and hearing, but remembering twenty more, I was then forced to trust them to my etc. I had sent my own flying chair to bring the boys, who had not the grundee, with orders for Pedro to sit tied in the chair, and Dicky tied in his arms, Jeremy to sit tied to the board before the chair, and David behind. So I hoped they would come safe enough, and then my wife and Sally were able to help themselves. Having dispatched my caravan, and being all alone, I called Quilly the next morning, and telling him I had thoughts of viewing the country, I bade him prepare to go with me. I had now been here above six months, and yet, upon coming to walk gravely about the city, 
I found myself as much a stranger to the knowledge of the place as if that had been the first day of my arrival, though I had been over it several times in my chair. This city is not only one of, but actually the most curious piece of work in the world, and consists of one immense entire stone of a considerable height, and it may be seven miles in length and near as broad as it is long. The streets and habitable part of it are scooped, as it were, out of the solid stone, to the level with the rest of the country, very flat and smooth at bottom, the rock rising perpendicular from the streets on each side. The figure of the city is a direct square, each side about six miles long, with a large open circle in the center of the square, about a mile in diameter, and from each of the sides of the outer streets to the opposite side runs another street, cutting the center of the circle as in the figure. Along the whole face of the rock, bounding the streets and the circle, there are archways, those in the circle and the four cross streets for the gentry and better people, and those in the outer streets for the meaner, and it is as easy to know as by a sign where a great man lives, by the grandeur of his entrance, and lavish distribution of the pillars, carving, and statues about his portico, within and without, for as they have no doors, you may look in, and are not forbid entrance, and though it should look odd to an English reader that an Englishman should speak with pleasure of a land of darkness as that almost was, yet I am satisfied whoever shall see it after me will be persuaded that for the real grandeur of their entrances and for the magnificence of the apartments and sculpture, no part of the universe can produce the like. And though within doors there is no other manner of light than the suikos, yet that, when you are once used to it, is so agreeable and free from all noisome savor, that I never once regretted the loss of sun within doors, though I often have when abroad. But then that would be injurious to the proper inhabitants, though they can no more see in total darkness than myself. I have been over some of these private houses, which contain, it may be, thirty rooms, great and small, some higher, some lower, full of suico lights, and extremely well-proportioned and beautiful. The king's palace, with all the apartments, stands in and takes up one full fourth part of the square of the whole city, and is indeed of itself a perfect city. There is no great man's house without one or more long galleries for the ladies to divert themselves at divers sports in, particularly at one like our bowls on a bowling green, and at somewhat like nine holes, at which they play for wines and drink a great deal, for none of them will intoxicate. In my walk and survey of the city, one of the colams, being making a house to reside in, when at Brandlegorp, I had the curiosity to go in. I saw there abundance of bots stand, filled with a greenish liquor, and asked Quilly what that was. He said it was what the stone men used in making houses. I proceeded farther in, where I saw several men at work, and stayed a good while to observe them. 
Each man had a bot of this liquor in his left hand and stood before a large bank of stone, it may be thirty feet high, reaching forward up to the ceiling of the place and ascending by steps from the bottom to the top, the workmen standing some on one step, some on another, pouring this liquor with their left hands and with their right holding a wooden tool shaped like a little spade. I observed wherever they poured on this water, a smoke arose for a little space of time, and then the place turned white, which was scraped off like fine powder with the spade handle, and then pouring new liquor he scraped again, working all the while by Suico lights. Having my watch in my pocket, I measured a spot of a yard long, about a foot high, and a foot and a half on the upper flat, to see how long he would be fetching down that piece, and he got it away in little above two hours. By this means I came to know how they made their houses, for I had neither seen any tool I thought proper, nor even iron itself except my own, since I came into the country. Upon inquiry I found that the scrapings of this stone and a portion of common earth mixed with a water they have will cement like plaster, and they use it in the small ornamental work of their buildings. I then went farther into this house, where I saw one making the figure of a glum by the same method, but it standing upright in the solid rock against the wall. The workman held his liquor in an open shell, and dipping such stuff as my bed was made of, bound up in short rolls, some larger, some less, into the liquor, he touched the figure, and then scraped till he had reduced it to a perfect piece. It is impossible to imagine how this work rids away, for in ten months' time after I saw it, this house was completed, having a great number of fine, large, and lofty rooms in it, exquisitely carved to all appearance. My wonder ceased as to the palace when I saw how easily this work was done, but sure, there is no other such room in the world as Begzerbeck's that I described above. The palace, as I said before, taking up one quarter of the city, opens into four streets by four different arches, and before one of the sides, which I call the front, is a large triangle formed by the entrance out of one of the cross streets and the two ends of the front of the palace. Along the lower front of it, all the way runs a piazza of considerable height, supported by vast round columns, which seemed to bear up the whole front of the rock, over which was a gallery of equal length, with balustrades along it, supported with pillars of yet finer make, and over that a pediment with diverse figures and other work, to the top of the rock, which, being there quite even for its whole length, was enclosed with balustrades between pedestals all the way, on which stood the statues of their ancient kings, so large as to appear equal to the life. The other two sides of the triangle were dwellings for the diverse officers belonging to the palace. Under the middle arch of the piazza was the way into the palace, through a long, spacious arched passage, 
whose farther end opened into a large square. On each side of this passage were large staircases, if I may so call them, by which you ascend gradually and without steps into the upper apartments. The next morning we took another walk, for I told Quilly I had a mind to take a prospect of the country. We then went out at the back arch of the palace, as we had the day before at one of the sides, there being a like passage through the rock from that we went out at, to an opposite arch leading into the garden. I say we went out at the back arch, and after passing a large quadrangle with lodgings all around it, we ascended through a cut in the rock to a large flat, where we plainly saw the black mountain with its top in the very sky, the sides of which afforded numberless trees, though the ground within view afforded very little verdure or even shrubs. But the most beautiful sight from the rock was to see the people come home loaded from the mountain and from the woods with, it may be, forty-pound weight each on their backs, and mounting over the rock to see them dart along the streets to their several dwellings, over the heads of thousands of others walking in all parts of the streets, while others were flying other ways. It was very pleasant to see a man walking gravely in one street, and as quick as thought to see him over the rock, settling in another, perhaps two miles distant. The near view of the country seeming so barren naturally led me to ask Quilly from whence they got provision for so many people as the city contained, which, to be sure, could not be less than three hundred thousand. He told me that they had nothing but what came from the great forest on the skirts of the mountain. But for the grain of it and some few outward marks, says I, I could have sworn I had eaten some of my country beef the other day at the king's table. I don't know what your beef, as you call it, is, but I am sure we have nothing here but the fruit of some tree or shrub that ever I heard of. I wonder, says I, Quilly, how your cooks dress their victuals. I have eaten many things boiled and otherwise dressed hot, but have seen no rivers or water since I came into this country, except for drinking or washing my hands, and I don't know where that comes from. And another thing, says I, surprises me, though I see no sun as we have to warm the air, you are very temperate in the town, and it is seldom cold here, but I neither see fire nor smoke. We have, says Quilly, several very good springs under the palace, both of hot water and cold, and I don't know what we should do with fires. We see the dread of them sufficiently at Mount Alco. Our cooks dress their fruits at the hot springs. That is a fancy, said I. They cannot boil them there. I am sure we have no other dressing, says he. Well, Quilly, says I, we will go home the way you told me of, and tomorrow you shall show me the springs. But pray, how come you to be so much afraid of Mount Alco? I suppose your eyes won't bear the light. Is not that all? No, no, says Quilly. That is the country of bad men. Some of us have flown over there accidentally when the mountain has been cool, 
as it is sometimes for a good while together, and have heard such noises as would frighten any honest man out of his senses, for there they beat and punish bad men. I could not make much of his story, nor did I inquire further, for I had before determined, if possible, to get over thither. As we were now come into the garden, I ordered Quilly to get ready my dinner, and I would come in presently. We went next morning to view the springs, and indeed it was a sight well worth considering. We were in diverse offices under the rock, Quilly carrying two globe-lights before me, in which were springs of very clear water, some of hot and some of cold, rising within two or three inches of the surface of the floor. We then went into the kitchen, which was bigger than I ever saw one of our churches, and where were a great number of these springs, the hot all boiling full speed day and night, and smoking like a cauldron, the water rising through very small chinks in the stone into basins, some bigger, some less, and they had several deep stone jars to set anything to boil in. But what was the most surprising was you should see a spring of very cold water within a few feet of one of hot, and they never rise higher or sink lower than they are. I talked with the master cook, an ingenious man, about them, and he told me they lie in this manner all over the rocky part of the country, and that the first thing any one does in looking out for a house is to see for the water, whether both hot and cold may be found within the compass he designs to make use of, and finding that, he goes on or else searches another place, and he told me where this convenience was not in great plenty the people did not inhabit, which made the towns all so very populous. He said, too, that those warm springs made the air more wholesome about the towns than in other parts where there were none of them. I thanked him for his information, which finished my search for that time. End of chapter 18